Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. As soon as I notice Halloween creeping up from behind me, I begin the preparations required for what I hope will be another amazing holiday filled with ghosts, goblins, and fake blood. I gather junk food for the trick-or-treaters. I find the right pumpkin to carve a face in. I hang some ghosts from the trees in my yard. And of course, I call Steve Vernon and ask him to tell me some of his stories. I suppose that call to Steve Vernon has become a bit of a tradition here on Nighttime. It started in Halloween of 2016, when Steve's stories took us on a tour of haunted Halifax. Then, in 2017, we met again to hear some stories at Black Rock Beach, the site of Halifax's last public gallows. And then, most recently, in Halloween of 2018, Steve invited me to a secluded cabin where he shared some stories from across haunted Nova Scotia. Now this year, he agreed to do it again, and this time promised to ramp up the terror and bloodshed even further. The plan we came up with was similar to prior years, but we added a few twists. I got the idea during a recent walk through a nearby forest. While lost in both my headphones and the twisting trails, I happened upon an abandoned, and long-overgrown hunting-type shack that I thought would be a perfect spot to drag Steve and my mobile studio to. And then, to fit the ambience, since our recording would be under the watchful eye of an old-growth forest and God knows what else, I asked Steve if he'd pull some stories from a prior collection he released called Wicked Woods Ghost Stories from Old New Brunswick. The recording we made in that shack is what we're about to hear. In this episode of Nighttime, I'll take you along with me as Steve Vernon cracks open his dusty Wicked Woods manuscript and shares two chilling stories from Haunted New Brunswick. As Steve and I made our way to the abandoned hunting shack, I noticed two things. It was much further than I remembered, and walking through the woods is a whole lot less enjoyable the day after a heavy rainfall. It was wet, it was cold, it was getting dark, and more than anything else, it was going to be the absolute perfect location to hear my favorite storyteller share some of his work. The journey, in the end, was more than worth it. Although the hunting shack was not as warm and definitely not as quiet as I'd have liked, once we sat down and poured some coffee from my thermos, we were ready to get rolling. This book, Wicked Woods, that's not very recent. When did that come out? Uh, Wicked Woods, I think that might have been my second collection. This came out in 2008. Okay, and you've wrote 
so many books. Like you, when you think, like when you look at that one, Wicked Woods, <clears throat> do you remember writing it? Like, would you remember the stories in it if you didn't flip through it? I, I remember some of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I like this one. Uh, I really like the cover. I think it's the scariest, coolest cover they did. Uh, oh yeah. You know, all those different, there's faces all through that twisted piece of wood, you know. Yeah, and that's a very cool collection. And this book is a compilation of stories set in the woods in New Brunswick. Am I getting that right? In New Brunswick. Okay. But uh, it kind of has I, like a headlining act. So in this book, mm -hmm. I'm, like the Dungarvan Whooper. Definitely in the woods, yes. Is, and that's kind of like one of the headlining stories. Yeah. I'm thinking in terms of music, mm. it'd be like the headlining act or something. Well, I mean, logging was huge. It's still a big industry in, in uh, New Brunswick, but it was huge back in the 17 and 1800s. Yeah. Yeah, that's where, that's where uh, you know, the, a lot of their money was made, was just uh, going out into the woods. Yeah, well, you see why. You see, even today, you drive through there, yeah. it's just forest. A lot of it. But. Yeah. For the first story he shared, Steve picked a classic, perhaps New Brunswick's most famous supernatural story. It concerns a section of forest haunted by a vengeful spirit that can be heard at night making a guttural whooping sound. This is the story of the Dungarvan Whooper. So the first story I'd like to read is, is one popular. It's called the Dungarvan Whooper. Folks have been spinning this yarn for just as long as the waters of the Dungarvan River have been flowing deep and cold and wide. This is a tale that's best told over the guttering coals of a campfire. When the night sounds are creeping closer to you and the moon is haunting high overhead. Between the winding tracks of the Bartholomew and the Renew rivers, snakes the Dungarvan as it flows down into the salmon-heavy stretches of the Miramichi. In the mid-1800s, the life of a lumberjack was just as hard as any life could be. Lumberjacks headed out into the woods in early fall and didn't set back until spring came rising up from the Southland. You may very well ask just why lumberjacks didn't work in the summer. Fact was that the trees were easier to fell when the underbrush thinned out as it did in the winter. Frozen wood was easier to cut, and fresh-cut timber skidded nicely over frozen ground. So that's why the winter woods rang with a hard chopping song of steel against pine. Some versions of the tale called the camp boss Ryan and some say that that was the cook's name. Perhaps both men were named Ryan, but for our purposes, we'll hang the name Ryan upon the cook and be done with it. One just can't fuss over too many knots and tangles when one is trying to unravel any particular yarn. Ryan was a young lad, tall and strong and dark of hair, with eyes just as clear and blue as a flowing summer stream. He was a better cook than a lumberjack, so he served his time in the camp kitchen. He was well-liked and respected for his fine, booming roar of a voice. You see, leather lungs and a strong bellow were prerequisites for a lumberjack in those days. I don't have a lick of use for a man who whispers timber, the camp boss said. If a tree is falling my way, I want to hear about it quickly and not two minutes too late. 
Camp boss was a hard man, as most bosses are. He could squeeze a shilling until the king blushed red and turned blue for lack of breath. He measured his days in coin and profit and suffered an idler not. He prized a penny more than he valued any lumberjack, and that's where the trouble first began. I want to hear those axes ringing, he would say. The Dungarvan woods should never fall quiet. I hear money clinking in the sound of every falling tree. He valued the camp cook, though, for it is a man's belly that will carry him into the woods and back again. A lumberjack's legs and the swing of his axe were nothing more than extensions of his growl and hunger. He'd work harder and go farther on the promise of a good meal. You must bear in mind that a lumberjack was expected to awaken at four in the morning for a breakfast of pork and beans or pancakes or both. The whole mess was washed down with piping swallows of tea tainted with the taste of the iron sulfate used to purify the water. They would hike miles into the woods looking for the timberland, toting cold lunches and then hike back at about eight or nine in the evening for dinner, a meal of pork and beans or pancakes or both. The camp cook was expected to be up before any of them in time to have everything ready when the lumberjacks awoke. He would rise while the crows were still snoring in their trees and cook up both breakfast and dinner. Next, he'd awaken the men by banging a broken peavy, a logging tool that looked a little like a spear with a hook on it for moving fallen timber. He'd bang it against a rusty iron wheel rim and sing it out in his big booming voice, Daylight in the swamp, rise and shine, rise and shine. Ryan was a good lad, never wasted his time or money in the far-off town of Renu. He kept his wages tucked safely inside a fine buckskin money belt that he buck buckled tightly about his belly beneath a layer or two of flannel and a pair of red cotton long johns. The money was meant to be hidden, but secrets are hard to keep in the closeness of camp. Some of the more cynical lumberjacks referred to Ryan as a cheap-hearted spend-you-not, but the majority of the fellows knew him better than that. The truth of the matter was that Ryan was saving enough of a grub stake to marry a young girl in Miramichi. Whatever the reason, the weeks flew by and young Ryan's money belt grew fatter and fatter. Then, one fateful winter morning, the camp boss sent the man out to work. Aren't you coming, boss? The camp's number two man asked. I have work to be done right around here, the camp boss answered. Because he was the boss, no one dared to complain. They took their share of cold grub and some freshly baked bread and headed off into the New Brunswick woods. Head for the fire stand of trees, the camp boss ordered. I want some tall timbering done today. It was a good day for work in the woods. The crew felled many a tree and limbed them clean, preparing them for skidding down to the river. It was a day like on any other day, only when they returned to camp, Ryan lay dead upon the floor of the kitchen with his skull broken open. He took sick, 
the camp boss said. He pitched himself a fit and fell down and died. Wasn't anything I could do. It happened so fast. Where'd the blood come from? Somebody asked. He hit the stove when he fell, the camp boss answered. Didn't look sick at breakfast, one man said. Maybe it was something he ate, the camp boss said with a shrug and a sneaky little grin. He sure looks sick now, sick to death. It's a bad joke, and the camp boss was a bad man. Fact of the matter was the camp boss had murdered Ryan. Pretty nearly everyone in that camp knew it on account of the fact that Ryan's money belt had mysteriously vanished. But because the camp boss was the camp boss, there wasn't any proof Ryan had been murdered, and no one said a thing. If the truth were told, the camp boss had caught Ryan by surprise, coming up behind him with an axe handle and busting his skull wide open. We need to bury him, the camp boss said. The old bugger was all too eager to be rid of the evidence. Bury him where? The number two man asked. The ground is frozen harder than a banker's heart. There'll be no digging until the spring thaw. Bury him in a snowbank, the camp boss commanded. The snow will keep his body from rotting until the ground thaws. We'll turn him a fresh grave in the spring and bury him good and proper. Just mark the snowdrift well and clear so we can find him come April. So that's just what they did. They loaded Ryan's body up onto a sled, dragged him deep into the woods, and heaped him in a snowdrift. They hung Ryan's bright red toque in a nearby tree to mark its location in their memory. That sounds trickier than it really was. A lumberjack knows his trees just as surely as a father knows his own sons. Yet in the springtime, when they returned to bury Ryan's body, something had happened. The toque was there, but there was no sign of Ryan. Maybe a bear dragged the body off, the camp boss decided. It's the only explanation. Yep, the number two man Riley noted. There's a whole lot of bears wandering in these here winter woods, aren't there? you trying to say, the camp boss asked. What I'm saying is that there aren't that many bears out there who don't know how to sleep through the winter. I'm saying there wasn't any bear that made off with young Ryan's leftovers. Camp boss scowled. He didn't much like being disagreed with, especially when he was in the wrong. Painter, he said. It was a painter that took him. By painter, the old camp boss meant panther of which there were quite a few in New Brunswick in those days. They were big cats, a type of cougar that lived off deer and cattle and whatever else they could scavenge up. At that moment, a terrifying screech shattered the silence of the woods around the lumberjacks. It sounded like a cross between a man, a devil, a squealing barn door, and a tomcat torn inside out. Huh, the camp boss said with a nasty grin. There's the proof of it. That's the sound of a panther, if I ever heard one. Most of the crew agreed that the camp boss's explanation didn't sound all that convincing. Doesn't sound like any panther I've ever heard, the number two said. Sounds more like a devil to me, another man said. Devil with a twisted tail. They all considered this. Screech owl, then, the camp boss decided. 
Only it wasn't any screech owl. No, sir, no, ma'am. It screeched again, and that second whoop faded away. The boss's hair turned from its usual coal black to snowy white. Now, these were tough, hard men, used to long winters and rough working conditions. Yet the sound of the screaming whoop terrified them. It's a painter and a screech owl, the camp boss said, clearly grabbing at any explanation his imagination could offer. He kept scrambling around for a reasonable answer, but no one was convinced. The screech sounded a third time, and as that third whoop died, so too did the camp boss. He dropped to the ground stone cold dead. Might have been fear, might have been guilt, Maybe he just took sick with the same sort of sickness that Ryan had. Whatever the reason, the camp boss fell to the dirt and he moved no more. Then that screech sounded again, like the sound of a saw blade running over the buried stubbornness of an unforgiven steel nail. Like the sound of the wind blown through a dead man's bones. Like the sound of a spirit screaming out for vengeance. The crew buried the camp boss at what was supposed to have been the cook's gravesite, and they carved out a handmade cross. Each man said a short prayer as the Dungarvan whooper howled again and again and again throughout the entire ceremony. All of the praying in a month of hot Sundays won't lay this devil to rest, the number two decided. He is screaming for justice or his lost money belt or maybe just for his breakfast. Later that day, the crew packed up their gear and paddled down the Dungarvan to the town of Renault, deciding that it would be a fine time to take up cod fishing, or horseshoeing, or anything else besides lumbering. These old boys were scared into early retirement and promptly gave up the trade. A second and a third crew made the long trip to the logging camp of Whooper Spring and left before a week was up. In time, there wasn't a lumberjack in all of New Brunswick who would care or dare to spend a night in the Dungarvan camp. Camp is cursed, they'd say, and leave it at that. At the turn of the century, an idealistic young parish priest of Renault decided to do something about the Dungarvan whooper. The priest's name was Father Murdoch. He was a handsome man by all accounts. But folks say that his journey to the camp and his attempt to lay that ghost to rest wore ten long years off the man in ten short minutes. He said the necessary sacred words, sprinkled the ground with holy water, waved a blessed crucifix about every inch of the camp, and all the while the Dungarvan whooper continued to raise his unholy racket. The local folks claim that the Dungarvan whooper haunts these woods to this day. They claim there isn't a speck of underbrush or wildflower that will grow upon the shared grave of the camp boss. Storytellers swear that the whooper will lure men out into the woods and frighten them away. They'll tell you to beware the scent of freshly baked bread and the sound of frying bacon, which precedes an ungodly whooping noise. Horses rear and dogs howl, not even so much as a chipmunk dares to walk these woods. So they say. Whooper has made such an impact on the area that in the early 1900s, the first 
train to run from Quarryville to Newcastle was called the Dungarvan Whooper. Some said because of its eerie whistle, while others thought that it was because of the ungodly ruckus raised by the lumberjacks riding the train to and from town on the weekends. Around that time, a strange hermit was spotted twice in the Dungarvan woods. Some folks believed that he was the one making all the noise, while others wondered if maybe the hermit wasn't Ryan himself, somehow raised up from his empty grave. Whooper or whopper, you decide. Folks in the Miramichi area still warn travelers against camping anywhere close to Whooper Spring or the deep-flowing Dungarvan River. And that's all the warning that I need to hear, that Dungarvan woods will never fall quiet. Now whoop it up good and loud, because I believe you might have been holding your breath for some time. For our next story, Steve promised something truly disturbing, and especially so to the animal lovers out there. It's another revenge story, and it takes the form of a nightmarish take on the telltale heart. Except instead of a heart beating below floorboards, it's a horse taunting its unlawful owner. This one, I think it has to be one of the darkest ghost stories I ever, ever told. It's called Ghost Hill. Uh, it takes place out, uh, about 20 miles, 20 kilometers rather, north of Calais, Maine, lies the pretty little town of Linfield, New Brunswick. Deep in the heart of this town is a shadowy hillside shrouded with poplar and mountain ash. The folks around Linfield call it Ghost Hill, and it's a common stunt for the school kids to dare one another to run up to the top of Ghost Hill, because nobody can resist a double-dog dare. You get an eerie feeling walking on this hill. It feels as if something or someone is watching you. The air around Ghost Hill is always chilly and hushed. Not even a breeze dares stir this dark little hummock. It is the perfect place for a graveyard, some people will tell you. And if you ask nicely enough, they'll be more than happy to tell you why. It seems that back in the mid-1800s, this property was owned by one William McGeorge, the foreman of a logging crew. He didn't spend all that much time in town, he was far happier out in the woods, felling timber, making what money that he could. Money was an awfully big word for Mr. William McGeorge. It was a big part of his life. He just couldn't get enough of it. Bluntly put, the man was tighter than a frozen clam. He wouldn't give you the last year's calendar if you promised to burn it for him. As you can guess, William wasn't all that well-liked around town, but truth to tell, nobody would say boo to him. He was a big man and a big employer, so it wouldn't pay to make trouble with William McGeorge. There was just no reason to. He paid his men regularly, if not well, 
and he rarely caused problems. At least that was the case until that census man from Fredericton came into town. And nobody really paid that much attention to the census taker. They gave him whatever information he asked because that was the law, but the truth of it was that they didn't really see much sense in what he was doing. They knew they were all there, and they only needed to count heads when it came time to carve the Thanksgiving turkey. And even then, numbers only mattered because whoever came first got the drumstick, and whoever came last wound up with a hunk of bread and some turkey grease. We knows we counts, they would say. We counts our fingers, our toes, and our paychecks. What else is there to worry about? Oh, sir, no, ma'am. Nobody paid much attention to that skinny little census taker from Fredericton, except old hard-hearted William McGeorge. You see, that census taker was riding one of the finest-looking white mares that he had ever seen, and William McGeorge decided that he just had to have that horse. A horse that fine could fetch a bucket load of dollars at the market, William said. Somehow I've got to put that pony in my stable. So later that week, after riding up William McGeorge's hill, that skinny little census taker never came riding back down again. Being a logger, as I mentioned, William McGeorge was a sizable man. Truth was, you never seen the like of it when old William started swinging an axe. He could topple a tree faster than old Moody's goose and drop it right wherever he wanted to. I mean, no one ever said that William McGeorge was anywhere handy to slow. So when that skinny little census taker came riding up to big William McGeorge's hill, I guess William was waiting for him, maybe with an axe. In any case, the census taker was never seen again in those parts. That white mare spent the rest of the year in McGeorge's barn. I won it in a bet, he'd tell anyone who dared ask him how he'd come by such a fine animal. If they pushed the point, he'd just tell them to mind their own darn business. The truth was they were all a little scared of William McGeorge. They always had been, and after that census taker up and disappeared, they were even a bit more frightened. William began to act strangely, as if something were bothering him. There was something in the big man's eyes, something in the way that he looked around the building before walking in the door, as if he were afraid somebody might be in there waiting for him. He backs into camp these days, his loggers noted, and he carries an axe wherever he goes. It's like he thinks somebody is following him around, getting set to sneak up on him. The funny thing was that William never seemed to get around on to selling that mare. Maybe he was just too lazy, or maybe he'd grown used to the horse, but neither of these explanations seemed anywhere close to likely. Then there were the sounds heard coming from up on the hill. Some nights folks would hear chopping like William was trying to hack a big old tree down. Then there were other nights when they heard hoofbeats galloping across the property. It's that white mare, some said. McGeorge rides it around and around the fence of his hill, like he was trying to outrun something a whole lot faster than speed ever dreamed of. He's trying to outrun the devil, others said. Then came the night when they heard screaming coming down from the hill.
Nothing human could have made such a sound, and it was a while before the stalwarts of the town worked up enough nerve to march up that hill to see what the bother was. We got there, and it was something you wouldn't believe, said the town constable. Big William McGeorge was huddled in his barn, crying like a little baby over a bloodied-up axe. He'd cut that fine white mare into more pieces than I want to think about. Rendered her down to stew meat. Where's the sense in that, I ask you? Three nights later, there was one more scream, cut off short and sharp. The constable grudgingly led a few more townsfolk up to that dark hill of McGeorge's. They found William McGeorge right where they had left him, hunkered down into his barn and clinging onto that axe, his fingernails dug deep into the grain of the wood. He was stone cold dead, and no one could tell just how he had died. I guess he finally got counted, was all that the constable would say. Shortly after that, folks began referring to that hill as Ghost Hill, and it's been called that ever since. And I guess it always will. Sometimes folks hear that chopping sound, like an axe working into something hard and soft and wet. All at the same time. Sometimes folks hear a mare galloping around and around in the night. They blame it on the wind. They blame it on nerves. They blame it on everything but the truth. The truth is, nobody ever goes up that hill except maybe a child or two on a dare from their friends. And even they don't stay up there all that long. And who could blame them? So Wicked Woods, although it's a little over 10 years old, people can still buy this? Oh yes, yes sir, yes sir, they can. Where would, where would you recommend someone who wants to read the rest of the stories in this collection? Where should they go? Well, uh, you can pick it up at most bookstores. Uh, it isn't often carried in, in Nova Scotia bookstores because it's about New Brunswick stories, but any bookstore would be happy to order a copy. Or if you want to come and meet me, I'm going to have a huge book, ta book table uh, full of Nimbus books at uh, Christmas at the Forum from November 1st to November 2nd to November 3rd. You know, three days running. Uh, I'll be selling books all, all that weekend. And uh, I'll have copies of Wicked Woods and all my other books. Fantastic. You, you, the Christmas at the Forum, you're always involved in that. Why don't you have a collection of like spooky Christmas stories? I'm working on it. Okay. Yeah, it's just not uh, a lot of evil stuff happens around Christmas. Yeah, well, I've, I've got one story, but it's not handy. I can't lay my hands on it immediately, but uh, called Shotgun Christmas. Okay. Yeah. Get, me, get me for some Christmas reading, and I'll read it to you. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed tagging along with Steve and I on our journey through Haunted New Brunswick. As horrifying as the thought of supernatural activity is, at least in these stories, the forces seem to be getting justice right. I just wish the horse had to survive the whole fiasco. And with that, I'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. 
I want to again thank Steve Vernon for sharing his gift of storytelling with listeners of the show. I know many of you enjoy his appearances here, so if this is the first time you've heard him, go back through the archives and listen to the prior appearances he's made. Also, for those of you taken by Steve's style of storytelling, get to your local bookstore and pick up one of his books. My favorite is probably Halifax Haunts, as it features a collection of my city's most haunted locations. But really, everything he writes is great. Next, I want to give a big shout-out to the Canadian bands Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause, who provide the majority of the music you hear on Nighttime. You can check out these great bands with the link in the episode notes. And of course, the biggest thanks of all goes out to everyone listening. Without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my time putting this show together. For any of you who want more nighttime, please consider supporting my Patreon campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And then for a couple dollars more, you can access the Nightcap After Show, in which I and a guest climb even further down the rabbit holes than what you'll hear here. For this episode's nightcap, I've added an additional story from Steve that I wasn't able to fit in. It's the story of a New Brunswick ghost ship, the fire ship of Bay de Chaleur. It's another chilling tale of supernatural revenge waiting to tingle your spine. You can join my Patreon and access the supporter content by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. With that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show, and welcome the new members to the group. Jessica, Tyreen, Sarah, and Margaret, I appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you're using. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.